today, Troy. Mr. Taylor, how are you? Pretty good, and you? Good, thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Long time no see. I saw you uh, 26, seven years ago in Melbourne in... But Bennett's Lane or somewhere? Bennett's Lane. Oh, yeah. Tony, Tony Calabro sent all his students, students there to go see you. Oh, yeah, no, Tony. Yeah, all right. <laughs> oh, yeah. How, I remember that. I remember doing a workshop. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Tony, uh, Tony Clever, obviously a massive supporter and all our students, we know who you are because of Tony and uh, we're better yeah. off for it. <laughs> of course, you had Bruce Clark as well. I remember. That's right. Yeah. I, I think when I did that workshop, I think, I think Bruce was, was on that. He brought a bunch of his students along. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever do much stuff with Ike Isaacs? Yeah, Ike was really my mentor um, back in London. Right. Uh, when I was living in London and going back to, in fact, there's a Barney C Castle connection with that because uh, Barney, Barney Castle was playing at the, the, one, the 100 Club in London, a very old, famous old jazz club. And my dad used to play there. And the, the boss of the, the club said, we've got, he said to me, he said, and I was only 19, he said, uh, he said, we've got Barney Kessel come in here. He said, would you like to do the opening slot? You know, I said, yeah, great. Because I really wanted to meet Barney. So that was, that was quite exciting. But not only was, but did I play, do the opening set for, for Barney, but also Herb Ellis was there and uh, Ike Isaacs was there. And afterwards, Ike was talking to me and he didn't live that far away from me. So he said, come over to the house and um, we'll, We'll have a play, you know, because everyone went to Ike Isaac's house. And <clears throat> you see any of those photographs, you know, this, um, there was a chair that Ike always used to sit you in, you know, by, by the fireplace. And there's a picture of, of Wes sitting in that chair, playing with, you know, just jamming away with Ike. Wow. And so I used to go and sit in that chair uh, with Ike and just listen to what he, he was playing, because like, it was, you know, I'd already been playing the guitar for a long time by then, but um meeting Ike, that really made me a guitar player, you know, because I can remember playing something for us. He said, what do, you, what do you want to do? I said, well, I really, I really like solo. Play. I want to get into solo playing. And he said, well, play something for me. So I played him, I played him a tune, uh, which I thought was okay. And he said, well, that's pretty boring, he said. <laughs> I, I said, well, what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean? He said, well, I said, what would you do? So he played it. And he's, what I played was pretty much chord melody, but then what he played had all these lines going on in between, like, like Bruce does, you know, uh, you know, all these like movement, this movement going on. It's what I, what I, I do, which is I don't really play chord melody. It's, it's um, more kind of linear way of playing. And I heard him doing that. I thought, wow, I have no idea how he does that. But, but he what happened was as well. Um, there's, there's a chain, a supermarket chain in the UK called Pizza Express. Mm -hmm. Became very, very famous. I think it went over to other parts of the world as well. Now, the guy that started that was a guy called Peter Boiso. He was a big jazz man. So every pizza place he had, he always had a jazz band. And then they had the, the Pizza Express Jazz Club in Dean Street and so, which is a famous, so, you know, it's a famous jazz club. And there was another one called Pizza on the Park at Hyde Park Corner. And I'd met Peter Boiso. 
and uh, you know he's this incredible sort of entrepreneur. And he said, "Oh, I like your playing." He said, "Would you like to? Would you like to play at my new venue I've, I've got called the Pizza on the Park?" He said, "I was thinking of putting the guitar duo in there." And it's just around about the time I'd met Ike. So I ran to Ike's house, and then just as I was about to leave, I thought about asking him. Uh, but I thought he would say no, because he, he just finished working with Stefan Grappelli. He was with Stefan before I was. And uh, as I'm going out, I said, oh, by the way, I said, you probably won't want to do this, but we, I've got this Thursday night gig at the, the Pizza on the Park, and, and we need to do it as a duo. Would, would you like to do it? Thinking he would say, no, I would do things like that. But he said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, the only thing is, I want to rehearse. He said, I don't, I don't want just to go and jam. He said, I want to we come up with arrangements. So I started going around there. Uh, I go around to his house probably two or three times a week, sit down, and he'd start coming up with arrangements. And he said, right, I'll play this. Now you play this. And I would play what he told me to play. But I, And it sounded great, but I didn't know why it sounded great at that time. <laughs> you know? So I, I just kind of followed what he was, his instructions and then after a while, it all kind of it had a trickle-down effect, like filter coffee. You know, it, just had, it started to trickle down. I started to understand what was going on. And uh, after a while, I found that it, it took a while to sink in, you know, his approach to, to harmony and everything. But, but basically, Ike was the, you know, I wouldn't be the guitar player I am today if it wasn't for, for Ike. He was probably my most major influence. Uh, of course, Barney was as well, having worked with him yeah. you know, su such a lot. Just fortunate to know these these guys, you know. Yeah. Because we didn't have, I didn't go to a music college or anything. Um, and that was, you know, my generation of players, we just we just got gigs and we learned to play on the gig. <laughs> you just kept your ears open. <laughs> I, he ended up relocating to Sydney, right? Was that right? Yeah, he did because his brother... He had quite a few, quite a few relatives, and of course, his his nephew is Mark Isaacs, who's a very well known uh, uh, piano player in in Australia. So he would Ike used to go over there every year, and I think after with after he stopped working with Stefan, and he did a lot of studio work in, in the you know for movies and things in in the London studios, and a lot of that kind of started to dry up. And he was doing some teaching, and he just thought, "I'll go over there and better climate." Got a lot, lot of family there. Um, I think he was offered a, a, a teaching gig as well. Yeah, yeah. In Sydney, which he did, he did for a number of years. But he, yeah, he liked being in Australia. Yeah, I know Tony used to. Well, Tony had lessons with him, but we, we had some of his books that we would study out of, and he was just fantastic. Yeah, he was very generous. I, you know, he was. Uh, he, he just showed you everything. You know, it wasn't. Um, you know, it, it, yeah. you get some some players that aren't quite as as generous. It's not like they're holding anything anything back, but they he would actually actively encourage you and, and say, "Why don't you? Why don't you try this, pal? Try this," and he'd show you a chord. And yeah. What he used to do actually sometimes with me, he'd ring me up and he'd say, "Martin, could you could you come over?" He said. I've figured something out on the guitar uh, that I want to show you. So I go over there and he plays something, but he, his ideas were, were, could be quite complicated. And 
some of, some of his ideas he actually couldn't play. So he'd explain, he'd try to play a little bit of it and then he'd explain it to me. Then he'd say, can you play it for me? <laughs> play it back for me because I've, I was just a little bit more nimble, I, I guess, in, in, in my playing. I could, I could work my way around uh, a lot of these things. So I used to try out a lot of his ideas and play them wow. back to him. <laughs> that's, that's super cool. So do you have, you remember when you first met Barney? Yeah, I do. Uh, that was, yeah, I was seven, I was 19 uh, at the 100 Club. I mean, the 100 Club is, I believe, the oldest jazz club in the world. It's still wow. there, the longest running. Yeah. And, um, Victor Feldman's father ran it. You remember Victor Feldman? Sure. Remember. The, the, yeah. the vibes player? You must have known him in LA. Yeah. Uh, and then Humphrey Lutzen had it for a while. And um, and then, of course, they, uh, uh, punk, actually, so the, the whole punk movement started there. The, uh, the Sex Pistols, that was like their, their first gig was down there so they didn't only have jazz it was mostly kind of trad jazz right they, you know Ackerbilk and Kenny Ball the, the, the British um, trad players uh, and then the Rolling Stones used to do gigs down there like private gigs quite often uh, but yeah it's got, got quite quite a history yeah and I can remember really the thrill of meeting Barney it was absolutely packed that night and just meeting him that night and he was actually staying at a uh, a guitar player friend of mine, he was actually staying at his house. So a couple of days later, I went round there and we all went for lunch together. And again, Barney was just so encouraging. Uh, and I'm sure Bruce felt, yeah. found that too. You know, he was incredibly, uh, uh, yeah, he, he really encouraged me. What he did, have that ability to give you confidence, you know, uh, just being around him, things that he would say to you, gave, gave you a little burst of confidence. Well, if Barney says that, then, you know, it must be, it must be okay. I must be doing okay. Yeah. And then a few years, well, quite a few years later, actually, uh, then when, when Herb Ellis uh, went back to work with Oscar Peterson, I took Herb's place in, in the great guitars, like, like, uh, like Bruce did in the US. I did the same thing in, uh, in, in Europe. And, and then I worked individually with all, all three of them, with, with Herb, Barney, and Charlie. And with Tao, didn't you do it with Tao too? Yeah, I played with, yeah, not the great guitars, but I did play with Tao. Yeah. And of course, I worked with Mundell uh, as well. Oh, yeah, Mundell, sure. Um, wow. Yeah, just fortunate to know these, these guys. That's, um, you've got to play with some amazing players. Do you, do you have any good stories about Tao? Because, I mean, he was a big guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was. He was a uh, and a very gentle guy. Yeah, you know, very sweet, nice guy. And um, again, I just he just he just would sit on on the chair and play and smile. And, and I mean, you must have worked, worked yeah. yeah, yeah, oh yeah. It was just so nice to just to be around him. You know, yeah. He had he had his huge hands, massive. And, and, you know, he designed the Tal Farlow guitar with Gibson, and it had a short-scale neck. Like, he liked it to have a short-scale. So, you know, I mean, that's why a lot of those stretches that he did, besides yeah. the fact that his hands were massive, he kind of built that into an advantage <laughs> when he, he got that guitar made, you know, so it could even go a little further, which right. is, like, really ingenious. It's like, think about like it. spreading... 10 frets or something, yeah, right. or something ridiculous. Like those piano players that can grab, you know, like 15s, yeah. you know, 
and 13s and stuff. He was very quiet, though. He, 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 didn't, he didn't talk a whole lot, uh, Talon. He, he, somebody, if you asked him about things, he would tell a story or, or so, but he was a gentle, quiet kind of person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every, I, everyone that met him just really liked him. Yeah. Everyone, everyone would take to him immediately because there was no... There was no attitude with him. There was no, you know, there's this one of the world's great jazz guitar players, and he was, he was just so humble and, you know, gentle. That's the word. Yeah, and, and he left it, you know, and gone off to do it another business and kind of came back to it. He was like a painter, right? A sign yeah, painter. he was a sign writer. Yeah. He, he used to do things like, um, in fact, there's a documentary about him where he was doing the sign on a, on a ship, on, not on a ship, on a, on a yacht. Uh, like a big sign painter, you know, yeah, like right. kind of billboard type stuff. Billboards, you know, like shop fronts and all that yeah. kind of things. In yeah. the days, hand hand do those, you know. Um, it's quite, you know, I think it's a bit of a, a lost art now. But um, yeah, so he went back to that because, and Mundell was quite similar too because, you know, where you get some musicians that really thrive on the on being on the road and and live performance and everything. There are some mus musicians that don't. It's not really for them. Mm. And uh, Mundell realized that he didn't want to be out on the road all the time doing that. So he went to LA and stu did studio works, but also got into to writing music for TV and films. And with Tal, he uh, he had this this other talent, this other, this other skill that that he enjoyed doing. I think I think Tal's wife was. I think she was a clothes designer for like Broadway shows and uh, things. I think that's what she did. And she, um, so you know, the, the two the two of them just had a very nice life in uh, in, in New Jersey, in New Jersey, on uh, close to town. See, see, I'm in the name of the place. No, is it? Is Seabright. There, that's the name of the town. Seabright, New Jersey. That's where they lived. Is there any players over the years that you you didn't get to play with that you? That you would love to play with, or would have loved to have played with. I mean, I'm sure there's a long list, but is there any that stand out? Or yeah, I've, I've always been a big fan of Kenny Burrell's, and although I met him, I ne never got to play with him. Yeah, um, I, I would have liked that because he, he was a, he was a big influence. He was a kind of turning point because I started playing guitar when I was really young, four years old, and then because my dad was a jazz musician, I always heard jazz. I heard Django and Eddie Lang. And, and then I started listening to, you know, to, to Barney. And then when I, then when I heard, I got this album. <laughs> it's funny, really. My dad came home one day and he had all this vinyl. And uh, what it was, someone he knew <laughs> had done something uh, not quite legal, shall we say? I don't know what it was exactly. But he went to he went to jail. <laughs> he went to prison, and he said. He said, well, I'm in prison. Could you look after my record collection? Uh, so we had this. I didn't find this out till later. So we had all these records that suddenly appeared. And uh, I've still got them. So I don't know what happened to the guy, whether he's still in jail. Well, I wouldn't think so. He'd be about 120 now. <laughs> I, I, I still have. Actually, I inherited all these records that, that this guy gave my dad to look after. Right. And I remember going through them one day, and it was a this photograph, and it there wasn't a guitar player. I didn't even know there was guitar on it, but I quite liked the cover because there was, there was a woman on it who just had a, a nice kind of smile. <laughs> and it was like, she was standing out in the rain with a raincoat on. 
I thought, I wonder what this is. Anyway, it turned out to be uh, Shirley Scott. Yeah, the organ player. The, the organ player. Yeah. So I put this on, and I remember it started up with this B3. Really swinging. And then this guitar player, they're playing Traveling Light. That was the name of it. And then Kenny Burrell came in. Do, 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 da. Yeah. And I was transported. I thought it was a cool, this is the coolest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> and I just played that record over and over and over again. And I used to sit listening with my guitar and I would, I would play along, not just to, to Kenny Burrell's solos, but also to her solos, because really swinging player. It's just incredible. And I would just sit there playing and, not like I didn't transcribe, so I couldn't read or write music, but I just used to memorize some of the phrases. And then I'd realize, well, those phrases are working. You know, you know I knew about chord sequences and uh, because I've been playing for a long time. So I knew about that and I was already improvising. But then I, I would identify what the chord sequence was just by ear and say, oh, yeah, I could, I could use those, some of those phrases on, on another tune. So I would sit there listening to that with my guitar and just kind of playing along and imagine myself one day doing what I'm doing now, you know, <laughs> which is like touring in America, um, playing all these places. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a, like, a, like a dream, you know, but listening to that music and transporting myself. I think it's probably, you know, like positive vibes. Yeah. You know, you can do it. Just have positive, positive vibes about something to make something happen. And it happened. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you sometimes catch yourself um, thinking back as a kid and looking where you are now and everything you've done and just go, wow, you know, like I, I did what I dreamt about doing as a kid. Yeah, not regularly, but sometimes that does happen. I know because... The reason I played guitar was because, unusual for, for my generation, uh, growing up in the UK as well, is that all the other kids that I knew of my age were all listening. They all, you know, it's all Rolling Stones and the Beatles, the Shadows. Which, you know, I listened to that too. But because my dad was a jazz musician, I was already listening to, to Django Reinhardt. Right. And I was sitting there playing, playing along to those records. So even though I liked all the other music, it didn't... It didn't appeal to me to play it because I, I saw there was much more for me, like harmonically and everything, in this music. But I wanted to uh, wanted to play jazz, so that was so Django was very, very, very important uh, to me. And listening to Django and, and Stefan Grappelli. So when I started playing with Stefan Grappelli when I was twenty two, there were a few times when I was on stage and think, oh, I'm sitting where Django sat. You know, and, and this is the guy I listened to playing the violin. Actually, before I was even born, you know, because wow. you know, because I would have been, you know, I think, but I think babies before they're even born can, you know, can hear what's going on. So I'm, I'm sure I was listening to Django when I was uh, before I was even born. So it was very much a, a part of me. So then you, yeah, then, but you know, I'm a great believer in the interconnectedness of of everything in in life and in the universe. And I think it's just that everything's very interconnected, totally interconnected. So it shouldn't surprise us really. Um, 
but it does sometimes when I'd sit there and, you know, I'm just sitting just like three, four feet away from, from Stefan yeah. and every night playing that. And it's, it's just magical. But I do remember thinking to myself, I must remember this. I must remember as much as I can, not every single detail, but the, the feeling of this, what it was like. And, you know, did and you, certainly, certainly not take it for granted. Did he share a lot of stories with you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, occasionally. I mean, it's very funny because I'd, I'd been working with Stefan for about a year or so. And my, my dad said to me, you know, has, does Stefan ever give you any, any direction or anything? I said, no, he, he doesn't. You know, we just decide what, what we're going to play. And I know the tunes. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that he liked me was because that there was this young guy at 22 knew all of these old tunes. He didn't have to say, do you know so-and-so? He just started playing. Hey, I know that. I know, you know. <laughs> That that was <laughs> even then that was pretty rare. Yeah, and, and so be, because of that, he would. I just played. Sometimes he would suggest, "Why don't we do this for an ending?" Or I. But then I would suggest to him, "Let's try this." Some of the arrangements that then he continued to play. Some of those, uh, there were you know, I I put some of the input of those arrangements came from from me and also Mark Fosse, the French guitar player that also played with him. Um. Yeah, so my dad said, does he ever sort of tell you how to play? I remember once I did actually play, went into something, and I started doing real kind of like four in a bar, like hot club style four in a bar. And I could see, he looked at me and started shaking his head. And he said, he said don't do that. I don't like that rhythm. <laughs> I said, but that's the rhythm with the, with the hot club. He said, yeah, I never liked it. <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he have some played- I played more sw- American swing style, like like Bruce and like Frank Vignola. You know, um, I was more in uh, Freddie Green. I, I was more. He liked that. He liked that kind of kind of feel. But uh, yeah, so my dad said, you know, does he ever give you any advice or anything? And I said, no, no. He said, what do you talk about when you're traveling? It's all, all kinds of things, you know. Mostly not about music. It might just be about things in general. And uh, he said, well, you should ask him. So one day we were on a flight somewhere and I turned to Stefan and he was reading, a, reading Time magazine or something. And I said, Stefan, have you got any advice you could give me as a young musician? And he, he took off his reading glasses and he, he looked at me. He said, uh, yes, my dear, I, I tell you, I best, this is the best advice I give you. And I thought, oh, right, okay. And I go, what is it? He said, never tell your wife where you keep your money. <laughs> <laughs> and then he put his reading glasses back on and carried read, reading paper again. Did he, <laughs> so that was it. That was the only advice he ever gave me. Did he share any Django stories? Like, did he talk about Django much? Yeah, he did. Um, I mean, London stories, it's, it's funny because I hear people tell stories about Django and I was like, oh, actually... So I'm one of the few people alive that can actually tell you whether that was real or, or not. Or you say, well, it, it's kind of, what you're saying is kind of right, but it wasn't quite like that. And I, I can tell them whether they believe me. But, you know, I did get the, the, the nearest thing to the horse's mouth, really. And so, yeah, what well, was like the, the story, there's a story that always goes about, um, I've heard lots of different variations of it. The time they, they played nude, they played naked. Someone played a trick on them and said, um, they were off the load of money and they said, you've got to play at this dance. Uh, and it's a true story. 
because uh, Stefan actually told the story on the Michael Parkinson show. Mark, Michael Parkinson show. Yeah, you know who Michael Parkinson is, being Australian. Yeah, uh, he works out there. He's kind of uh, Johnny Carson, Johnny yeah. Carson of the UK, and a big jazz fan. Michael and uh, Stefan told this story, and uh, but I, I, I've had a couple of people tell me the story, and I said, no, you actually yeah, you haven't got it quite right there. But but it's the the real story is. Somebody offered them a gig to play at a dance, and they said the only thing is it's a nudist colony, and so everyone has to be naked, and you all got to take your clothes off. So, um, often you lots of money. So Stefan told Django, and Django, being a gypsy, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not taking my clothes off in front of people, um, but got offered a load, a real load of money. <laughs> And I think he said, said to Django, it's okay for you, you know, you're sitting down, so, you know, you can, <laughs> you can hide things a bit behind the guitar. He said, I've got to stand up there with a the violin. But, <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, they've got more money for it. So they're standing behind the curtains. Uh, in those days, you, you didn't walk out on the stage. There's always curtains, and the curtains came, either came up or you know, opened up. And so they started to play, and they're completely naked. The curtains open. And the place is full of people, all with their clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but he told me story. Of course, the other thing was, of course, uh, when the war, when the Second World War broke out, they were in, in England, they were in London. Because the Hot Club, Django and Stefan, they worked more in England than they did than in, in France. Because they did a lot with the, like the variety circuit. It was owned by um, the Grade brothers, Lou Grade and uh, Delphont, who then started independent television in the UK. And they were Django Stefan's managers. Well, Lou Grade was, he was uh, Stefan's manager uh, and, and Django. So they did that whole circuit. They, they were always working. When the war broke out, they were in London. Um, Django said, I've got to go home to my family. You know, as a, as a family man uh, so he went back and Joseph went back and Stefan stayed because Stefan didn't have any family also Stefan was a, a big kind of Anglophile he liked all things all things English I think he already owned a house he had a little house down in, in Devon in the west of southwest of England so he stayed and then he got a gig in a club called Hatchets right opposite the, the Ritz Hotel uh, in Piccadilly, which is still there, and he, somebody said to him one day, "Oh, you got to hear this 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 young lad playing uh, playing the accordion." So at the other side of the river, down in Battersea. So I went and there was this young, a blind kid playing the 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 accordion, and he played really great. And he got talking to him. And he said, "He said, do you play piano as well?" And he, he said, "He said, yeah, piano is my my first instrument." He said, anyway, the. the Cut a long story short, that was George uh, George Shearing. <laughs> so ah. playing the accordion in a pub in South London. Wow. So he, he offered, you know, he, he offered him the job, and they would play together um, uh, at Hatchets. In fact, uh, um, Stefan was already playing at Hatchets before then with with Django as well, and also with a, a drummer called Ray Ellington. Um, you can find some footage on YouTube uh, of Stefan with. George Shearing Quartet, Ray Anderson on bass, um, Coleridge Good on bass, who played with Django, 
because after the war, of course, Django had a, a group called the, the London Quartet mm. uh, of, of all, you know, of British music, musicians. Well, uh, Coleridge was West Indian, but, but, uh, but based there. But what happened then, while St Django went to, back to Paris, St uh, Stefan stayed on in London, and he started doing a lot of radio broadcasts. And like my, my grandparents used to go and see, see Stefan and hear him on the radio and things. So he became quite the star and he got a record deal with Decca, the, the, co the company that famously turned down the Beatles <laughs> a, couple, a couple of decades later. Um, so Stefan was making records. So you, you'll sometimes see Stefan's name spelt differently. It, it, it won't have an I at the end, it'll have a Y, uh, Grappelli with a Y at the end. And the reason he changed that was because, of course, Italy were allies with Germany at, at that time. So a lot, of, a lot of Italian people in, in the UK were, were, were given a bit of a hard time. Um, and I think in some cases houses confiscated and all that, that kind of thing. So because he had an Italian name, his father was Italian. He, he put a Y on the end because he thought it looked, it looked like it could be more Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> so you'll see these records. And I've got one at home. What happened was after the war, uh, Django went back to, to London and Stefan was making records and got Django on these records as well. So I've, I've got some 78s at home and it says, uh, Stefan Grappelli's Hot Five and then small writing featuring Django Reinhardt. And the first gig they did after the war was at the, the London Palladium for Lou Grade. And it was all going to be, you know, it was a big thing. By this time, of course, people had not, not forgotten Django, but Stefan was the biggest star. Uh, so they're walking outside the London Palladium and Stefan's name is above Django's. And Django says, I'm not going on. That's it. Right. That's it. He, he got the half. He, he walked away, ran away. Django, Stefan ran after him, got a hold of him. He said, no, you're going you're gonna to come. And, and uh, they went managed to get him to go, go back to the theater. And again, it was that thing where the curtain goes up and they're, they're sitting behind the curtain and Django's sitting there with, and he, he's not holding his guitar or anything. He's sitting there with the guitar. And it was a, a guitar intro that Django was supposed to do. The curtains went up, you know, it said, uh, Stefan Grappelli with Django Reinhardt or the, 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 the high billing. Curtain went up and Django refused to, to play the intro, nothing. So Steph was going, start. Django was, no, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> he, he was resolute that he wasn't going to play. He was so, he was so annoyed that he, he got second billing. And eventually, Steph said, he said, you play, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he kicked Django in the leg on stage. <laughs> so Django started to play. <laughs> there, were, there were stories, you know, like that. But, you know, the funny thing is... People have an idea of, of Django. It's not only Stefan that I knew that knew Django. I knew quite a lot of people that knew him. And I used to work with Django's son, Babit. And I, I, I met Django's uh, sisters mm -hmm. as well. So I knew a, a few of the family and quite a few musicians in England, the older generation that knew him. And when they spoke about him, it, it, it was quite different from the perception that a lot of people have. They think, oh, you know, he was a wild drinking guy and all that. He wasn't, he, he wasn't at all. Um, he wasn't a drinker. He wasn't a womanizer. 
Uh, he liked to play billiards. Uh, like all the Reinhardt family, he was a heavy, heavy cigarette smoker. Um, but, you know, he was sensitive to lots of things. He, he, he loved Debussy, Ravel. He was, a, he was an artist. He painted. He was a very um, deep thinking type of person. He wasn't the kind of person that, uh, when I hear people talking about Jack, oh, he must have been like this or he must have been like that. And it's, no, he, no, he wasn't. He was, he, was, he was pretty quiet, but, you know, he, he knew what he, he knew his value. Right. He knew that he was the, you know, he was the greatest. And, uh, you know, he wasn't modest about that, but he defended that as he did with that London Palladium. He wasn't very happy with the billing at all. So he told me some other stories when they used to travel around England. <laughs> they, once, they went into this pub and it was in somewhere like one of these real old country pubs in England, you know, it had oak beams and like 600, 700 years old with um, all the local alcoholics in there who are about the same age, <laughs> like propping up the bar. And Django was fascinated by any games. He was a very good pool player, uh, no, billiard player rather. So right. played. And um, he was very good at any kind of games and uh, things like that. So they were in there and they're having a drink and he really fascinated because, you know, those pubs in those days, they always had a dartboard and there's some of the local guys Playing, playing darts, throwing these darts at the, the board. And one of the guys, he, he threw three, three darts at the board, then took them out and walking back, at which point Django pulled out a knife from, from his jacket and threw it at the dartboard and got a, a bullseye, you see. <laughs> so everyone's, everyone's kind of terrified by this, but that was just his, you know, his thing. Oh, I could do that and just get out a knife, not thinking about everyone's going to be really really scared what happens. but yeah there, there were there was those kind of stories like that also Lou Grade uh, gave Django a car and I, I believe it was a Rolls Royce or it was something really it was a really good car and Django drove it around for a while to, until it ran out of petrol and he just left it <laughs> he, he abandoned it <laughs> oh man um, but Stefan told stories as well of the, you know, going to the, where they were in camp, where the encampment was when they were in the old horse-drawn wagons. And, uh, you know, he'd go in there and, and Django's wife would say, uh, uh, are you hungry, Stefan? And said, yeah, I, I could eat something. Oh, okay, I'll get you something. So he'd go out and he'd suddenly hear, she's <laughs> strangling a chicken. <laughs> I shouldn't say I'm a vegetarian. I shouldn't be laughing about about this. He said, but you know, he, he painted a really, uh, really vivid picture uh, uh, of those days. You know, later on, you know, before, just before the latter part of Django's life, he went to live in Samoa, and he got he got disillusioned with music and playing. He didn't really want to play music anymore, and he was happy just to live there to paint and to fish. And, you know, I can understand that. You know, I, I can, there are, there are times when playing music isn't so important to me. Uh, then it, then it kind of comes back again. Right. Uh, but, but he's somebody that has, has other interests. There's, there are some musicians that only are only interested in playing music. Yeah. What's, you know, what's I, your other interest? Where you, where you well, go? Well, I like, I like drawing. I, I like, um, uh, 
I like to read. I like to read a lot about about philosophy and um, especially Eastern Eastern philosophies. And that's the kind of thing that that interests me and the kind of generally, you know, the meaning of life. <laughs> you, you certainly get to travel a lot all around the world. Do you have uh, favourite spots that you love to travel to? I mean, besides Australia. Well, besides Australia, well, I worked it out. I've been to Australia 20 times now. Wow. That's a long time. That is um, backwards and forwards. That, that's, that's 40 days on a plane, isn't it, out of your life? Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> no, I'm very, actually very fond of Australia. And the reason, the very last tour I did with Stefan uh, was in Australia and New Zealand. And I, I'd already stopped touring with him, but then I... He said, would you come on this Australian New Zealand? And I said, yeah, I'd love to come. And it, because I wanted to get to see Ike again. I didn't know whether I'd, I'd get to see him again. Yep. So that was my main motivation um, at that time to, to, to go back and, and do that. And I really enjoyed that. It was such a lovely, it really was a nice tour that we did. And we had John Burr on bass with us, American bass player, and just me on guitar. It's just one guitar and Stefan. It's just the three of us. And... That was, that was really nice to do. And so Austra actually, I have a lot of connection with Australia with, with, with Stefan because then the last time I saw Stefan and spoke to him was in Australia, it was in Sydney at the, the townhouse, um, famous hotel where like Elton John or people, all the rock stars stayed. And Stefan was staying there and I was staying in a hotel next door. And um, I went up to see him and... I'd just come back from New Zealand and I, I brought him a bottle of Shivers Regal whiskey, which is his favourite. And we sat down, he had, he had, a, he had a glass of, of Shivers Regal and uh, he would have been 89 wow. then. Yeah. And uh, he was very, very weak. And I could see a, a big difference in him. But yeah, he, just, he really wanted to go back to Australia. Uh, and that was his last trip. And then when he came back, I think three months after that, he had a he had a stroke, and he couldn't play. And then once I heard he couldn't play, I thought, well, mm. I, I I can't see him really holding out much much longer. Yeah. Uh, which he was only a, he was just a month away from his ninetieth birthday. You know, I was I was really hoping to celebrate his ninetieth birthday uh, in, in Paris. But I mean, because we always kept in touch, and he, he played on a couple of my records after. And we made a couple of duo, well, one duo record together after I stopped touring with him. So, you know, there wasn't any any animosity. It's just I had other things that I, that I was doing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, he also had Mark Fosse with him, the French guitar player, left-handed guitar player. It was fantastic. And they were a great team together. Bruce got to work with Yeah, I got to play with him some on the West Coast when he came out without a band, you know, yeah. for various reasons. So yeah, how did, how did you guys meet? I don't even remember the first time we met. I know that he came used to come with Steph, to Stefan to the Venetian room yeah. at the Fairmont Hotel. But we did play a double bill in Sydney. You were playing with Ike Isaacs, and I had a trio at yeah. the Basement Club. That yeah. might have been one of it. No, but that's a long time after. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. I feel I forgot about that. Yeah, at the Basement. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that now. Wow. And then maybe uh, back in the days I was with Richie Cole, perhaps, with the George Wing European tours, you know, me, Scram Parade to Jazz. I saw that. 
I don't know whether it was the first time we met, but certainly the first time I heard about you was at the Paul Masson Winery in California. Uh-huh. We used to play every year with Stephen. There was a guy that always used to come and see this guy called Vern, Vern Hansen, his name was. He wasn't a musician, he was just mm-hmm. a big fan. Mm-hmm. And he was always talking to me, telling me about, about you. He said, you guys got to get, yeah. get together. And I'm not sure if we met there, and then we met at the, the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then we met in Wales. You just reminded me. Oh, Wrexham. But I think that the, the Sydney was before Wrexham. Yeah, that was. Yeah, you just reminded me. But we never actually played together. I don't no, think we no. even played together on, not on those till, nights. Not till yeah. uh, just the other night. Wow. <laughs> now, how how is this all going? And I'm I'm really bummed I'm not seeing this show. Is is there a chance for more of this? Because uh, so many people want to see you guys, especially because I imagine seeing you guys, you're all so extremely different and playing. So it would be so good to see. Yeah, we, we all play very different. You know, John Jorgensen, he's playing more of a, a Selma McAfee-style guitar, one of his own models, and um, he, he plays more in that style. He's playing mandolin too, and he's a great mandolin player. Yeah. Yeah, and of course Bruce has got uh, Barney's guitar that he's playing, so that's a great piece of the history. Because we're really just keeping. This wasn't a great plan that I had, but um, I think I was. Um, somebody wanted to put a in England, put three guitars together. Asked me to get two other guitar players to do it, and, and we called it the Great Guitars as a kind of a tribute to to the original original group and then it kind of took on a life and i've done quite a few of these after this i'm going to norway to do the great guitars but with ulf Vikanius and philip catherine so it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a pool of, of players you know that's the thing I mean, on this tour we started out with frank vignola on on the east coast and then right. just took, took over uh, when we got onto the west um uh yeah so it's just something that you know sometimes you can work really hard planning something having an idea and it doesn't happen and then other times you don't make any plans at all and it just all falls into place and that's kind of what's happened with this there was no plan wow but it just seems to have taken on a life i think probably barney herb and charlie are looking down on us and sending us energy but we i just see it that we're keeping the flame alive you know we're not trying to cash in on on what they what they did, far from it. We're, we're just we're keeping the, the flame burning, you know. And we have that connection because we were part of that pool of players in the great guitars, going back to the, the original members. Right. So we're you know it, it's continuing. And we've got the guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's so cool. It's really really amazing. Um, so how long how long have you been doing this the three guitar thing now? What with other with other lineups? Yeah. Ah, wow. Uh, let me think. I did, uh, I think I did the first one probably about 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, actually, I, I think the first one I did was for Robert Masters, who was Barney's agent in the UK, who used to book the, uh, the great guitars. In fact, it was through him, through that connection as well, that I, I, I played in the great guitars. And I think he wanted to put something together like that. And, um, um, yeah, and then I, then I was kind of cautious about it because I thought, well, I don't want it to look like I'm kind of trading off 
offers something else. And uh, you know, and I thought maybe that maybe there's a copyright of it. Maybe they, yeah. they uh, that that kind. Of, I didn't know. So, um, yeah. But it's just I think it's a really nice thing to, especially when it's kind of floating like this. If I if I'm just kind of the the key player, mm. uh, and then just bringing two two other players because what happens? You only need to change one player, and the whole dynamic changes. Yeah. Because we're playing the same set that we played with Frank, John and I played with Frank. But when Bruce came in, it just had another energy and another flavor to it. it made us play differently as well. So even though we're playing the same program, it, it's very, very different. It's, we only need to change one player, and it changes. Wow! And, and that's why I say to everyone, it's not because I'm lazy, but we don't rehearse too much. We keep a lot of things very open. Just to let, just to let the the creativity in, yeah. because if you know if you if you rehearse too much, you're not letting any creativity manifest itself. This way, you know we we can all we can all make mistakes and turn them into something good. <laughs> That's got to be a lot of fun. It is, yeah, because you've got that freedom. There's, you know, we 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 have a plan with every tune, but for instance. Um, John and I, we did. We played a duet last night, and I thought to myself before we only played it like one and a half times through, and I thought I think John should play a bit longer on it. So rather than going straight to the bridge, I went back to the beginning with you know another chorus, and he yeah, kind of looked at me a little startled, and I just sort of smiled at him. Go on, yeah, go on, go. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great because some magic happened. <coughs> some magic happened there. Uh, if you do that, uh, that's a, a nice thing to have. Some musicians don't like something like that thrown at them, but but some really rise to the occasion, which he did. Mm -hmm. There's actually on YouTube. There's a I found this uh, this video from years and many years ago with me with Stefan. It was in Canada, I think it was in Montreal, and it's just called Stefan Rappelli. It's called Faster. I don't know why someone put that in there, but anyway, I can rem actually remember that night because we always had sets numbers of choruses we played when we soloed it was it always sounded kind of spontaneous but it was quite worked out uh, right. so i knew i had one chorus here and two choruses on that one i had this i just took the bridge on that one you know yeah. so but this one we were playing love for sale and i would play two choruses and it's quite a long long sequence that love for sale so i got i played my two choruses and then Stefan just looked at me, play another one, which he never did. And it, it really threw me. And you can hear that I'm, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants because it, it put me off. Because I thought, he never does this. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, there's an edge to it. You know, I, I could play it much better now, probably. But um, there's an edge to it that's really, really quite nice. I think there's... You can almost smell the fear in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do Do you enjoy the road? Uh, aspects of it, I yeah. enjoy. I know I've been on the road since I was fifteen. Wow. Bruce and I are the same age. I'm just a couple of a few months younger. So he had his big sixty Route sixty six birthday. I'm having my sixty six birthday uh, in a few months' time. So it's, it's a long time uh, from the age of fifteen. And uh, things have changed a little bit. Air, air travel is not enjoyable, but 
when you get up on stage, you realize why it's all worthwhile. And because I've been traveling so much uh, in, in my life, I know people everywhere. So yeah. it's, how else do I get to meet my friends? Because they don't come to see me. Yeah. <laughs> up in, did, in the wilds of Scotland. How did you go through COVID? Because I know, you know, talking with Bruce, you guys, you know, you've lived on the road. That's been your whole life. And to be cooped up at home, how was that for you? Was that a, I know Tommy Emmanuel talked about it as being a blessing because he really had to, to take stock and sit back and kind of mm. enjoy that a bit. But how did you go? Well, I'd already cut down quite a lot on, on touring anyway. Right. I had all these other things that I was doing too. You know, I got my online guitar school, interactive school, which I've at Artist Works that I've had since 2009. Um, I was writing books. I've got my Patreon site with all my patrons. Um, so I'm always creating stuff in my studio at home for that. Um, you know, I had my guitar retreats. I, I've got my own guitar models. So, you know, I sell, uh, I get orders come in for my guitars and the, the, the guitar builders uh, make them for me. Um, so I had all these income streams. So one thing that wasn't, wasn't a problem was, was financial. Mm. You know, I was okay because yep. I'd already down a lot on the, it wasn't my main source of income or my only source of income. And, um, uh, I enjoyed being being at home. I'd never been anywhere in one place for, for two years since I was 15. Yeah. You know, I lived in the same house for the first 15 years of my life. And then lived, you know, lived in, got married when I was when I was very young and still married to the same person. And um, you know, we've lived in a number of houses, just backwards and forwards touring. But no, but I've never I've never been like on the road all the time because I always had a family. Mm. You, know, I mean, you know, I got married when I was 19 and had a son at 20. So I always had a family, not just to support financially, but to, to be there. So, I, you know, it, was, it wasn't, you know, to be away all, all of the time. Uh, but I really, I, I have to say, and I, I, I don't say this lightly because a lot of people suffered very badly uh, through COVID and, and lost family and friends. and but. It, it was, as, as Tommy said, you know, it felt like it was a blessing. It was, I really enjoyed that breather uh, of doing that, just doing a bit of work at home, taking my dog for a walk. And uh, after a while, it got to the point, you know, yeah, I'd like to go somewhere now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I it bet. did sort of get Unlike me, my wife wanted me to go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we you know we we live in a nice place. We live we live in Scotland. That's where I've lived in Scotland all my adult life, really, apart from my, my childhood. We lived in London, and uh, we live in the country, just on the just at kind of the start of the Highlands. Uh, okay. In a, um, even if I told you where I lived, you you wouldn't know it because I tell people in Scotland where I live, and they've never heard of it either. So you know, it's a, such a tiny little little place. Uh, so it's it's quite idyllic. I've got a nice house with um, a studio set up, and uh, so I was very very fortunate. You know, yeah. I, I was thinking of other people that weren't as fortunate. Even some of my, you know, some of my own family too that were kind of stuck in small apartments in cities with kids. Yeah. It was very very tough for them. So yeah, yeah. As, as Tommy said, it was a blessing. It was it was a blessing. Also, you know, yeah, to take stock of, of things. Yeah. Real interesting time to be our age and go through that. You know what I mean? I'm sure 
for every age, mm-hmm. it was it was a challenge. But you know, for people who kind of gone along professionally, really strong, hit, you know, kind of hitting your stride, getting into that kind of gray area as you're you know maturing, and then everything stops. And particularly us, we're not uh, the generation that is like totally online. I mean, we didn't grow up with it. It's not natural to us. We're, we have to learn it. We struggle with it. The, unlike your generation or even your kid, obviously, you know what I mean? So for us to kind of imagine what our life is like and how to make the internet work for us was a, was a challenge, even though we've been kind of doing it all along, banging the door shut, we became online creatures. Yeah. And, you know, thank goodness we had it. Yeah. But, but being our age, you know, we, we, it took a lot of effort, you know what I mean? And that's, that's beautiful. I mean, you learn a new thing. That's what keeps you alive and vital. I think there was another thing as well uh, about age, uh, our age group is that um, when you think, I wonder how long this will go on for and what will be left when we, we lift up the hatch in the bunker stick our heads out to see what's what what's happening and it does make you think will we ever get back to doing this again and um i know for some musicians the thought those those things that was very hard for me per- personally i just thought well you know i'm a 50-year career in music that's pretty good a good career or things that i've done uh that's okay that's that's enough so I was actually prepared that if it meant I was never going to play live again, that was it. Yeah. And I was actually okay with that. Uh, I, I still am, you know, if, if that was to happen. Yeah. Uh, having said that, it, it's great getting up, getting up and playing, but I can certainly, I can live without it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not like your oxygen supply is being taken away from you. Yeah, well, we, we just learned that we can live without it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you you would have spent, I guess, you would have uh, had a lot of online lessons and stuff like that. Have, have you noticed, and I talked to Bruce about this a lot too, just the environment with the technology and that we're doing more of this, um, just with your students. What are you seeing coming through students as you've over the years, that how things have changed and, you know, there seems to be less gigs for students and it's all online and it's all Zooming and... Are you seeing a change? It's it's totally different. It's like uh, a young musician saying to Bruce and I, you know, what advice have you got for my career? We can't actually give any because when we were that age, it was completely different. The music scene that we knew just does not exist anymore. Uh, It it isn't that you can't say, right, let's all get together and and do this. And you you can make a living. You know, I used to do like, about three or four in the early days, like three or four uh, jazz gigs. No, but yeah, about three jazz gigs in, in the week at little pubs that didn't play very much money. Um, then, uh, pl- you know, play a wedding and a dance uh, at, at the weekend. Um, and that was it. Actually, you know, I didn't make a fortune, but I I'm certainly made a living. If I wanted to teach, which I didn't do in those days, I could have done that as, as well. But now, um, I think what's happened now, the, the grassroots area of, of playing that I, that I did, and you've got some really good players where, where I was growing up in London um, that used to do those kind of gigs. You know, they, they were like studio players that used to go and play in pubs as well. And 
used to get paid kind of okay. Uh, but that kind of work has, has gone. A lot of these pubs and those kind of venues have been taken over by companies. Mm. So you couldn't go and speak to the landlord and say, we like some music or that, you know, find a landlord that liked the music and would put it on, they pay you. Uh, they, they, they can't do that anymore. And another thing that has happened, as that gap has happened, you've got two new groups that have appeared. You've got young players who are desperate to play. They want to find somewhere to play. Um, but they have no concept that actually music is a profession. Well, it, certainly, it certainly was at one yeah. time. So they will go and play for nothing. Or in many cases, they, even, they will pay the, the, the venue to play as well. Then you've got another, at the other end, you've got another group of, of, of people that are in their 50s, 60s, kind of retired, always wanted to play, didn't have the time because they had a career. Yeah, let's get a band together. Let's go and play in the pub. Yeah. We, we don't need any money. <laughs> You know, because we've, you know, we've got our pensions, we've made our money, so they go and play for free too. So that that kind of grassroots uh, level of playing, it, nobody gets paid anymore, which, which you, you did at our time. Okay, you don't get paid a lot, but you still got paid. I mean, the bartender gets paid. Yeah. <laughs> the wait yeah. waiters and waitresses, they, they get paid too. But you expect the musicians to do it because, of course, it's not a real job, is it? It's playing. <laughs> it's playing. It's playing. Yeah, you're having too much fun to get paid. Yeah, exactly. You, you should be paying us. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a pity. So for the, for the young players that are coming up and, and learning, and learning in an academic way as well, rather than learning on the job, there's nowhere to play because you've, it, it didn't affect me at all because I'd already taken what I did. Because so I took the advice, actually, of, of Stefan's manager many years ago, and he just said to me, he said, you've got to take what you do onto a concert platform. And at the time, I thought, well, that's kind of a bit, a bit snooty, you know, a bit snobby saying that, you know, what's wrong with playing in a club or a yeah. bar or something? Um, but I can, you can see having made that transition to playing that, more that kind of level of playing small art centres, small theatres, you know, we don't, don't play jazz music, we don't play stadiums <laughs> or even concert or big concerts, but um, just that kind of thing where you're playing to a uh, an audience that are there only to hear you. They they paid to come and see you. That's why they're they're there. Whereas you know you don't you do those other gigs, you go and people just come in and they're you know you're you're interrupting the something they're watching on TV and they've got their mobile phone and like, this is what I'm told by you know my students to do these kind of gigs. But I'd already gone to that that level of playing in places that were specific music venues. People bought tickets. I've come to see Bruce Foreman and Martin Taylor play tonight. That's why they're there. They're not there because there's there's a, a football game on, on the TV <laughs> and the beer's good. <laughs> uh, so so it hasn't affected that hasn't affected me in the, the live situation. Yeah. Well, what has been what has been great uh, was you know I got into the online teaching. I never taught because I was never taught myself, and so I I had no concept of you know any kind of formal music education um but then when artist works in napa california they asked me to start school with them um i was i was reluctant at first because i didn't know whether i could teach but i thought yeah i'll, I'll give it a try my son encouraged me said yeah you should you should give it a try so i put something cobbled something together 
And then I started getting some students pretty quick and they started submitting videos onto the site. It's not Zoom, but it's not done real time. Yeah. Yep. You know, and, uh, and then so I'd, I'd look at, I'd review their videos and think about what I could help them with. You know, give it a lot of thought and then uh, film a response. And, uh, and when I sent the responses off, I think, oh, that wasn't very good. I hope they did. I, I should have told them this. I was very, very, you know, I wasn't sure of my, about my abilities at this. But then after a while, I just noticed by the time they got to their third video exchange, they were playing so much better. And had such a, a clear, also a clearer understanding of what music was about. They weren't just playing on that superficial kind of level, especially if they'd learned by going on online and just seeing a, a, a YouTube video and seeing the tab mm. and kind of learn, learning that, that surface level of yeah, where, yeah. basically just where you put your fingers. But then starting to understand how music's made, how it's constructed, chord sequences, you know, rhythmic things and everything. Um, intervals, uh, all, all this, all this kind of thing, and that would that started to, I started seeing results after very very quickly. And I thought, well, I don't know whether I, you know I'm a teacher, but it's something is working. Whatever, whatever, whatever it is I'm doing, it seems to be getting through. Um, so I'll I'll stick with it. <laughs> and I had some really really satisfying moments uh, with with students. Um, uh, you know, and uh, great feedback from them. So, yeah, so I've, I've, that's something I enjoy. And also, it comes another thing. When you're young, you know, we talk, when we started talking here, we talked about, you know, when I was young with, with Stefan Grappelli and meeting Barney and when I was in my teens and my early 20s, everything was about me. The whole world, the universe revolved around me and my guitar. It was all about, because I've got to, I've got to show people I can do this, what I can do, I'm good. And, and uh, you know, they They'll, they'll want to hire me and they'll want, they'll want me to be in their band. Or they, you know, you've got to kind of make your position to be somebody, to be some kind of, create your, your persona and your musical persona. And as you get older and you've done just about everything that you've ever set out to do and more, you suddenly realise, hey, this, this isn't about me at all. But I think I al already kind of had the seed of that early on because I was never any good at practicing. I hated sitting in a room on my own and playing. But if one person came in, I'd start playing completely different. I always needed an audience. And it wasn't a kind of a show-off thing. It was the fact that it's, if I was just playing on my own, the music's not going anywhere. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just swirling around me. Yeah. I, need, I need someone to project that music to. And the only way I could actually sit in a room on my own and play was if I could just close my eyes and imagine I was on stage playing to people. And if I played something that I liked, I imagined they were a reaction to going, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Martin, great. You know, <laughs> that kind of <laughs> And that's the only way I could kind of fire myself up to play. And it, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a, a, an ego thing. It's just that I realized I always wanted to, to share music. And that's become stronger and stronger and stronger. Not just sharing the music, but also, you know, that's why I, I like to film things as much as possible, have as much as possible, so that at some point when I can't play anymore, uh, you can say, well, I've got all this, uh, all these videos. You can say, well, say, well, okay, this is what I did, and then I've got these teaching myself, and this is how I did it. 
So that, that is it. And the one other thing that is really important as, uh, as well that we forget about often as, as improvising musicians, jazz musicians, is actually composing as well, because songs continue. So I write music. Actually, I don't play many of my own compositions. I very rarely play them, but I, play, I write them for other people. And so I've got lots of people all over the world that play my tunes. I don't actually play them, but it's for them. And then I love that because then they play it completely different to the way they all play, play them different. Unless they follow somebody's written out the transcribed a tab version of one of my versions. And then they try and play it exactly like that. And they send me a video and I say, then I pull them apart and I say, right, change this, change that. <laughs> you know, I just get into completely, one of my tunes actually, I've got a tune called True that I've recorded a number of times. In fact, Tommy Emmanuel's recorded it as well. We recorded it together. And I get them to learn it as a piece, but then I get them to dissect it. And I say, okay, you've got the three elements of melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic. Okay, keep that. And so you know what the chord sequence is, you know the feel. Now come up with your own melody. Just use that as a, a basis for your own melody. So they, I get them to write their own melody. Then I, then I say to them, okay, now change the, the, the sequence slightly, just a little bit. The melody is, you know, just don't go off to, on a tangent, but just like, do like a counter melody. Even. Mm. And, uh, and then I say, now change the, the feel. So you've got a completely different piece of music. So once they've got that, and they say, oh yeah, this is, this is amazing. I've just written a silly. Okay, now play it in another key. <laughs> and that always throws the guitar players, because yeah. it's an A. Go, it modulates into C, so that, that's pretty straightforward. Right, now I want you to play that in A flat. So where does that modulate to now? So now I'm, I'm turning them into musicians <laughs> rather than um, tab-reading guitar players, you know. Uh, yeah. and because I'm doing that because that, that's what's really interesting. That's what's really fascinating about, about playing music. It's not just, you know, copying something, but knowing how to create it yourself. Mm. come up with something we can all do it there's no secret to it yeah. you know there's, there's no big mystery it's just a matter of finding out how how it all works and, and experimenting with it and having experiments that go wrong is good yeah. Yeah. i always tell all my students embrace your mistakes embrace them because they can take you in another direction and, uh, and play them twice right you can, yeah, you can play them twice. But very often, I, you know, I, it's not so much that you make a mistake, uh, but that you, you play something you didn't mean to play. You play something else. You say, yeah, well, I didn't mean to go there to that. But it, rather than trying to get back to the script, that's your chance to find something else. So where do I take that now? And then how can I get back to where I've got to be in four bars time? You know, and that's when it becomes really really interesting yeah. does does martin taylor are you a get up early grab your cup of coffee and grab your guitar kind of guy or what is your daily I, routine on you step away from the guitar when you're at home yeah i'll tell you i only play the guitar in my studio i don't play it around the house right uh, i um yeah i get up I, I tell you exactly what happens i get up in the morning um i go downstairs i make my wife and i a cup of tea I take it to bed. I, 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 no, I, before that, I, I let the dog out, feed him. I come up with a cup of tea and the dog. We, we drink the tea with the dog on the bottom of the bed. Then 
get up, have a shower, get dressed. I go into the next room for me and I meditate for an hour. That's what I do. An hour? Uh, wow. Yeah, that, that's, how I, that's, that's how I start my day. I kickstart my day of just getting centered. Sometimes my wife joins me, sometimes she doesn't. And that's, that's my way of, um, you know, when you, you pick up a guitar, you don't just play it straight away. You've got to tune it up. Mm-hmm. So that's me tuning myself up in the morning, just getting into that, that zone. And then, um, yeah, then I'll go downstairs. I'll go into the studio. But usually I try not to let the uh, sort of the um, emails and all that, that kind of stuff will get sucked into Facebook too, too early in the day. <laughs> yeah, then figure out what I've got to do that day. And I don't play till the afternoon. I never actually really do any work until about two o'clock in the afternoon. And then I'll, I'll do some filming for my Patreon site, film things for my students, anything that I need to do. Um, take the dog for a walk. Um, yeah, it, I, don't, I don't lead a very rock and roll life, I'm afraid. <laughs> but when did you start meditating? That, that really interests me that you do that. And it's... When did you start med- the meditation stuff? When I started to try to do that when I was a child. I didn't actually know what I was doing. I think I saw a, an Indian guru on television and they were talking about, I was fascinated by it. And uh, I was quite nervous as a kid. I was quite, uh, suffered from anxiety a lot. And uh, it was actually my dad said to me, he said, he said, you should learn to meditate because it would be good for you, help you, you know, when you get uptight and you get, get nervous. And so I, I found this place. And I went there and just learned like mindfulness meditation, just, you know, on, on your breath. But the place I went to, it wasn't a Buddhist temple, but it was like a Buddhist society uh, connected to a temple. And it was all Western people that were, were there. So I learned to meditate. And that, so we go back to, let's think, 1975, I think that would have been. Yeah, 75. Uh, and then I started going to some of their classes to learn about lots of different things. And I, I learned about Buddhism and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find an argument against it. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a good um, structure for my life because I'm somebody that needs a bit of structure in my life. And so then I started sort of following um, on and off, uh, you know, the, the, the Buddhist philosophy and the Buddhist way of life and not always been a very good Buddhist. But, <laughs> but yeah, very important part of, uh, of my life. But I, I just think of it like that tuning the guitar up. You know? That's so smart. The, the more people I, I discover and, you know, who I look up to, a lot of it comes back to meditation and how important that is in, in one's life. So, Yeah, well, of course, it's something that's become very, very big now. Um, yeah. You know, they, they teach it in, in companies. You know, when I was doing it, everyone thought I was a crank. I, was, <laughs> I, I used to meditate at a Buddhist temple and, and I was vegetarian. And they wow, this guy's weird. You know, but now it's, it's, it's kind of mainstream now. Yeah, no, it's mainstream. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, did you ever suffer stage fright or anything like that? Or did... No, no, never stage fright, life fright. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually got something on Facebook that I did with a friend of mine who's, he's a friend of Yuri Geller. You know Yuri Geller? I know. Yeah. They, they do similar thing, they're, they're mentalists, they're called, so they work with the, the, the mind. And it's a friend of mine, his name is Drew McAdam. 
And we did a little talk. You can find it on YouTube. Um, I think it's, yeah, just look, just look at my name and it's, I think it's like performance nerves or stage, stage nerves, something like that. And he talks about how to overcome those stage nerves because he had terrible, terrible nerves when he started to perform. He was actually going to give it up because he just couldn't, couldn't stand it. But then somebody told him how to overcome it. And in that video, it's very, very simple, but it's just a positive, everything. The mind is everything, basically, isn't it? So it's just getting going from that negative way of seeing something to a positive way of seeing something. Yeah. And what scares you then becomes actually very exciting. You know? Well, yeah, it's like we call it nerves and nervous, but and that word has a real negative connotation to it being nervous but the fact is is it's just energy i mean i want a person who's nervous for the sense that you you know you never music is magic one day i may look down at that fingerboard and it just doesn't make sense to me i mean i can't i couldn't explain how it really works i mean mm -hmm. i couldn't think fast enough to do everything i do mm -hmm. it's just but so I mean, a part of the energy of nervousness is great. You, you want to be good. You want to you want it to be wonderful performance. You you want to connect to that cool thing that's inside the music that's beyond the notes and the rhythms that the, the, the human part. And but as soon as of course you get in the process, it all goes away, mm -hmm. and you're just doing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I like the idea that people have nerves. It's just like. Don't look at it. It's just look at it as energy. It is energy. energy that you need to direct in a positive direction. Yeah, because you're having a negative look Look at it. What what, right. what Drew was, was doing in this video, and I, I, anybody that does have stage nerves, I would advise them to, to watch it. Um, it's very, very, it's not a very long video. Plus, he bends spoons at the end, which is, yeah, which oh, is, very, cool. which yeah. is very entertaining. Yeah. Right, right in front of me. And I still yeah. haven't figured out how he does it, uh, <laughs> even though it's like two inches away from my nose. Yeah. Um, but what 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 he, what he basically uh, without seeing the video, what he basically says is, you know, when you're nervous, what physiological things happen? There's things like the heart rate pulses, maybe a dry mouth, sweaty palms, butterflies in the stomach, maybe shaking. Like that. Okay, that's when you when you're nervous. That's the so it's a horrible feeling. Think about when you're excited about something. When you're really excited about something, what are the physiological things with that? Kind of the same. same thing, exactly. It's just energy that's yeah. coming it's up. It's exactly the same. You will get sweaty palm, dry mouth, a bit shaky, butterflies in your stomach. All these exactly the same physiological things happen. And so when you, you have those feelings before you're, before you're going to the gig, Russ, oh, I can't. I don't. Well, I can do this because you've got these, all these things happening in your in your body, and you've got these negative thoughts. You say, "I'm so excited about this gig. Right. I'm so excited, and this is going to be great." And if you do that, it will. It works almost instantly. You know, it might it may take a few a few runs of it, and you, it, you might have to go back to it again, but it really, really does work. Now, I've never, ever been nervous about playing on stage, but a lot of life makes me nervous. Mm. So I use it, I, I use it off stage <laughs> rather than on stage. 
you know, like when I'm going to an, I'm lying in bed in the morning, thinking, how am I going to get to this airport? How am I going to make that connecting flight to there? You know, I, I do worry about things, things like that. Not as much as I used to. I, I, I take more of an attitude now. If I can get there, I'll, I'll be there, you know. Well, I think COVID has really helped me in that level. You know, I have a lot of those same sort of, you know, I'm compulsively early like Martin is. Yeah. Um, I love that. That's one of them. Apart from your playing, that's the other thing that I really <laughs> like about you. You're someone that shows up not just on time, but before time. Yeah. You're my kind of guy. So. <laughs> and so, but um, COVID, you know, I mean, there before COVID, missing a gig, and that's why I show up on time because early because you know, like on time is late to me. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but COVID now, you know, like it's gigs get canceled all over the place, you know, for years now. Yeah. It's just, been, well, we're not sure. Oh, no, we can't do the gig. Sorry, we're going to cancel. And in the old days, that would like have yeah. upset my world to yeah. like a degree that I almost couldn't comprehend it. I mean, you know, if I'm on the way to the gig and, and I get in a car wreck and I lose a leg, I'm still going to limp to the gig and play, then go to the hospital. Oh, yeah. You know, the show must go on. That's yeah. always been in. But COVID is sort of kind of, mellowed a lot of that yeah. out. you know if i don't make the plane you know if it's not my fault i've done everything i can to make this happen yes yeah. my, my, just... my dad used to say you drag yourself onto that stage yeah if you have to yeah. with my dad being a, a musician my dad was also very punctual mm -hmm. and i that was just i cannot not be punctual <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just been bred into me i have you to do. and if i yeah. am late because so, sometimes circumstances can make you late other people can make you late so you've got to sure. wait for somebody before you can leave and then you know but i i am never ever late but right. something the circumstances will sure will go against me i was late once yeah uh there was a gig in spain you know <laughs> and and they start at midnight in the jazz clubs there okay and i was having dinner across town you know with my friends and they were going to drive me there and like, you know, I'm having dinner. How can you be late for a midnight gig? And yeah. somehow the <laughs> dinner went on and then like, it was about 11 or something. And like, we had to get across town and there was like a ton of traffic in Madrid, right. you know, and it's like traffic at 1130 at night. And sure enough, I ended up being like 10 minutes late, but you were midnight. Gig. You were in the land of manana. So it should be okay. <laughs> but the funny thing was, was, the club owner gave me shit about it. Meanwhile, right. every other gig we did that week that started midnight, we never started till 12.30 or 12.45. That one night, the guy gave me shit because I was there at 10 minutes after 12. <laughs> you, you guys have a gig tonight, is it? Actually, speaking of which, I got to start getting ready. So oh, in, yeah. in the interest of, of punctuality, yeah. maybe where we're going to call it, and we'll have you back because we can do Zoom. So we yeah, well, 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 thank you. Time. This is this is really nice just sitting here and, and, and chatting. I'm sorry, you know, sometimes once I start talking, I, I can't stop. I keep going. So I apologize if I talk that's, too much. That's well, no, that's point. what Guitar Wang's about. That's the whole point. <laughs> we all good. Our, our I, writers uh, all know that. You know what, <laughs> I've still, I've still got one of your CDs that I bought and you signed it for me all those years ago, sir. It's really? always a pleasure. You're such a great player and um, ambassador of jazz guitar. And we love oh, you. Thank you. You're awesome. And thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Really Thanks, good. Troy. And you, guys, uh, you guys have a great one. I'm so bummed I can't see this show. I really well, wish you we'll there. set something up in uh, LA or Nashville here. You yeah. know what I mean? Definitely. Okay. You guys right. be safe. All right. You take See care. You then. Bye. Bye now, guys.